I'm Matt Bush with BPR News. I'm speaking with former North Carolina Supreme State Supreme Court Justice and current podcast host. He's also got a lot of other things he's done in his career. Bob Orr, Bob Orr, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, uh, Matt, it's a treat. Thanks for having me. So well, we'll get to uh, your current new career here, which is being a podcast host, and we'll talk about that in <laughs> okay. just a second. But do want to talk about, as you are a former North Carolina Supreme Court justice, the state Supreme Court really seems to hold all the power in this particular case. Uh, I think everyone's waiting for what's going to happen there uh, with the redistricting lawsuit that is before them now, a ruling coming sometime next month. Um What's it like to be on the court when something like this is before you? And obviously, the Supreme Courts, U.S., state, all that, kind of set up in a way where you, you know, they want the justices really isolated from any sort of political pressure. Um, but what's it like to be ready to rule on a case like this when you're sitting there and, you know, on the court? What's it like? Well, I, I can give you firsthand experience because in 2002, when I was on the Supreme Court, the redistricting litigation uh, came to us in uh, a hurry. <laughs> I mean, and, and that's one of the first things is normally at the appellate level, you like to be able to have time to percolate, to analyze, to discuss the various issues, to go over the the draft opinion or dissents on, um, on the case. But with redistricting, because of the time pressures, I mean, you don't have that luxury. So uh, the first thing, it's a very abnormal situation being on the court because you have to do everything in a hurry. Uh, secondly, there is enormous political pressure with redistricting. It doesn't make any difference whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. It is particularly uh brutal if you happen to be a candidate in that election cycle. And in 2002, uh, I, I was up for a re-election, and it was a singularly unpleasant experience from a campaign perspective, even though that was actually my fifth campaign running uh, for statewide judicial office. But it was far and away the worst experience that, that I had. So uh, at least for Justice Irvin, who is up this election cycle, uh, the the pressure and the unpleasantness of the situation is doubled by having to run for election. Uh, you know, but but there's something really interesting, and you know, interrupt me if you got questions on on any of this, Matt. But uh, what's what's going to be fascinating about this particular redistricting decision is that. The trial court unanimously, two uh, Republican Superior Court judges, one Democrat Superior Court judge, uh, found as facts that every single one of the congressional districts had been drawn for the express purpose of creating a partisan political advantage for the Republicans. So from the standpoint of needing evidence uh, it's there. The court has already found it, and the Supreme Court is bound by those findings of fact. So then the question arises, okay, so if that's all true, where in the Constitution do you find the authority for saying that those facts violate the Constitution? And that's that's going to be a really interesting um uh, process for the court because there's nothing in the state constitution that 
mentions gerrymandering or explicitly references redistricting other than the the legislative process of doing it. And and so uh, the court, in order to strike down the, the districts as drawn, or at least some of the districts, is going to have to take a pretty obscure provision in the state constitution, come to the conclusion with a majority of votes on court that, in fact, uh, the free election clause, for example, means that if you have this partisan gerrymandering, it has to be struck down. And finally, if, if you decide that, you really need to give the legislature, the public, some method or vehicle for drawing districts that don't uh, violate the Constitution. And that's that's been the big rub, both at the U.S. Supreme Court and uh, this three-judge panel. They said, you know, uh, we, we've been asked to rule on extreme partisan gerrymandering, but how do you know extreme partisan gerrymandering from just good old-fashioned political gerrymandering? And, and, you know, I mean, there are experts that have come up with these mathematical formulas, but it, it's, it, it's a tough case. And, and I think, you know, the court would actually benefit from having a lot of time to think about it but they don't have it. In many ways, maybe the admission this week that the Republicans in charge of the General Assembly in, in, in power in both chambers are looking at moving the primary back a month might be maybe at least hedging their bets that they might lose this particular lawsuit. But yeah, right. really getting back to what you said about the appellate court ruling that they found it was gerrymandered, but that isn't necessarily illegal. That speaks so much to our politics right now, right? It's this kind of Machiavellian way of saying, yeah, but... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... <laughs> Unfortunately, simply because something is unfair doesn't make it unconstitutional. Uh, And, you know, the Supreme Court, which is the final arbiter of the state constitution, interpreting it and applying it, um, you know, can't just pull something out of thin air (laughs) and say, well, this is unfair. And so therefore we're going to hold it unconstitutional. You know, you have to have a provision, you have to have some explanation, uh, you have to have some rationale for how you came up with that. And, and last question on this. Again, you were there for one in 2002. Roles were a bit flipped at the time. You, at the time, were Republican on the Supreme Court. Democrats were in control of the General Assembly. How much pressure is there from the General Assembly, since that is who's bringing the law or who's defending the lawsuit? How much pressure do Supreme Court justices feel from the General Assembly, those in charge of it, about this right now? Is that real or is that just imagined or is that just something maybe we see too much into as political uh, observers? Now, unfortunately, it is real. And uh, again, as you said, Matt, the 2002 redistricting litigation had a Democrat-controlled General Assembly and five Republicans on the elected Republicans on the Supreme Court. But I mean, there were there were talks of impeachment. There were talks of dramatically cutting the budget to the court. I mean, the, the court, for better or worse, uh, uh, the whole judicial system has to go to the General Assembly uh, for appropriations for its funding. And I mean, there was uh, there was a huge amount of, of pressure uh, on on the court. And I, I think candidly, 
it, it had a long, it's had a long lasting effect and impact. I think the court has become more and more reluctant to have to wade into these battles in which you've got to, you know, slap the General Assembly on the hand, no matter who's in control, and say you're violating the Constitution. There's just this general reluctance to do it now. Well, it's very interesting. So 20 years later, we're facing pretty much the same thing you faced when you were on the Supreme Court. So 20 years later, we're going through this here in North Carolina again. I'd say you might agree gerrymandering is about as North Carolina, North Carolinian as <laughs> tier wine and, and vinegar-based barbecue sauce. Um so why did you want to get into podcasting, I guess, as this was coming up this year? And why did you, what about it, I guess, really uh, intrigued you that you wanted to start going this route, I guess, really to talk about politics and to bring some people into it, maybe that, um, you know, either were you know, or bring people into it that were listening uh, differently this time, or maybe that you're trying to reach differently this time? Yeah, it's uh, a little known fact. I was actually a radio, TV, motion picture major at UNC way back in the day with the aspirations of of being a sportscaster. Uh, somehow my career took a little turn uh, along a different path. Uh, but, I, you know, back in those days, it was reel-to-reel tape and 16-millimeter film. Uh, but I did have experience, you know, as a young you know, twenty-something uh, in the in the media field, and I've always been interested in politics. Of course, particularly the politics of Western North Carolina. Uh, having grown up in Hendersonville, having practiced law in Asheville, having kept my voting residence over in Yancey County, as you know, twenty twenty-one sort of got kicked off. Uh, I was thinking, okay, I'm 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 old. I'm going to retire from the practice of law here, um, and I I need something interesting and perhaps uh, beneficial to the public to be engaged in. And podcasts seem to be sort of the rage, so uh, I figured, well, okay, you know, I I can figure this out. Even though technology in the digital age, uh, you know, has has left me behind <laughs> in a lot of different ways. Uh, I thought, okay, I can figure this out. It looked going into 2021 uh, that, you know, Madison Cawthorn would would most likely be the the uh, uh, nominee of the Republican Party. And, you know, as I got into it in the summer of 21, even though there were a number of Democrats who had jumped in, the favorite based at least on fundraising and name recognition with Jasmine Beach Ferrara, the Buncombe County Commissioner. And so the election was shaping up potentially as this huge cultural war clash if if uh, Jasmine was the Democrat nominee and Cawthorn was the Republican nominee. And there was a lot of national attention already on Cawthorn for a variety of reasons that we know about. And so I thought, well, this this could be really interesting. And, and the other people in the race, uh, both on the Republican side and the Democrat side, all had really interesting stories, interesting backgrounds. And I know from my political experience, it's really hard to get the mainstream media to pay much attention to your campaign. You know, they, I mean, the news sources, the press have faced budget cuts and, and all sorts of pressures that limit their ability to to cover, say, the Republican primary, the Democrat primary, and candidates that aren't as well known. So I thought, 
okay, that would be that would be beneficial to those individuals to give them a, a, another platform to gain uh, attention and interest in in their candidacy. And I also thought, uh, you know, wishful thinking that I would have time to to do a, a more sophisticated production that would talk about Western North Carolina history, about uh, the unique places uh, and locations across the district well, that, that make it such a fascinating congressional uh, district. And so uh, all of those things sort of played into deciding, okay, we'll, let's, let's jump in and, and do this podcast. So you're a native. What about the mountains finds what you're a native? What about the mountains do you find so interesting politically? I think a lot of people look at our geography and they love the, the physical uh, assets that our region has. But what is it politically about the mountains? Because it is very different. And I think everybody in this area of North Carolina does kind of feel cut off from the rest of North Carolina. <laughs> what about the mountains, I guess, is really interesting politically to you? Well, probably the, the single most uh, interesting aspect to me is the history going back to the Civil War. Uh, my great-grandfather, Robert Franklin Orr, was um, just a farmer over in Henderson County as the Civil War began, and he ultimately refused to fight for the Confederacy and joined 80 other men from the area, went over the mountains into East Tennessee and joined the Union Army. So when he came back after the Civil War, he was a Lincoln Republican. And if you look at the history of the district, certainly going uh, from, you know, the late 1860s forward, everything was driven by which side of the Civil War did your family uh, uh, fight on or support? And I, I tell the story, I had an uh, English teacher in the ninth grade at Hendersonville High School who got mad at me one day and said, Bob Orr, you're a scalawag just like the rest of your family. And, of course, the scalawag was the Southerner who had supported the Union. <laughs> she knew which kids in the in the class had, were from Republican families. She was a strong Democrat. And so uh, there was a Republican funeral home. There was a Democrat funeral home. I mean, so the whole political dynamics well into the 20th century radiated this historical divide uh, which I've always found fascinating, both from a historical and a political and personal uh, basis. And then when I moved to Asheville in 75 to practice law, I, uh, my, my first engagement actually was with historic preservation. I was first president of the Preservation Society, but uh, I sort of matriculated over into politics and ended up as the district administrative assistant for uh, a young guy named Bill Hendon, who was elected to Congress as a Republican in 1980. And so, uh, you know, spent the next two years working with Billy in, in, in the congressional district. And so, I mean, they're fascinating people. They're fascinating stories relating to the politics uh, going literally all the way back to post-Civil War and uh, so I just thought, well, I mean, there are all sorts of fun stories and fun people uh, to talk about. I mean, you know, the big, the big stories, voter fraud. Well, let's talk about Zeno Ponder and the Ponder gang in Madison County. I mean, you know, unfortunately, I haven't had a lot of, a lot of time 
in the podcast to do that yet, but that, that's certainly my aspiration. I'm going to give it a little chance to talk about it here uh, before we get to some of the other parts of the podcast. But it's interesting you bring that up. I think, you know, a lot of what we've done here in our work uh, at Blue Ridge Public Radio in our news and in our podcasts, all three of them in some ways, but certainly two of them. We talk a lot about how Reconstruction is this era of history that was not really taught all that much. It's a bit forgotten, not a bit forgotten, very forgotten. But we're really living it right now, it feels like. And we're certainly living from the impacts and the legacy of what happened during Reconstruction. I think you just brought up a couple good points about that. Um, what can you say about that? I mean, w- say someone didn't know much about Reconstruction they approached you, what would you begin to tell them? What are the things people need to start learning about Reconstruction so that we can understand 2022? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, I grew up in an era of the segregated South. I was in the, the last segregated uh, high school class at Hendersonville High School. And I, I think people who aren't of my age and and uh, and who grew up in the South don't understand how uh, how completely inundated we were with sort of the lost cause and the Confederacy. Uh, you know, we they played Dixie at uh, the football games. They waved the Confederate flag. Nobody really had been taught, I think, adequately about what went on, you know, the the whole slavery issue and then what transpired during Reconstruction. There was this perception, well, we didn't talk much about it. All these carpetbaggers and outsiders came down to the South and and did terrible things to our ancestors, stole their horses, whatever. Um, Yeah, I mean, to really understand Reconstruction, uh, Ron Chernow's biography of Ulysses Grant has a very significant section near the end of the book about Reconstruction, which candidly I'd never learned, uh, you know, through high school, college, law school. Uh, I mean, there were so many things that transpired, not just in Reconstruction, but but from the white supremacy campaign of 1900. Charles B. Acock was the father of education, the, the governor. <laughs> Only 10, 15 years ago did we start finding out that, in fact, Acock had been one of the, the leaders of the white supremacy campaign in 1900 that, uh, that resulted in the, the overthrow of uh, uh, Wilmington government, local government, which had a number of African-Americans in elective office. I mean, so all of these things we just never learned about. And and I I think, you know, all of the the controversy over critical race theory, I, I guess my perspective is, well, you know, we need to know history. We need to have an accurate account of what happened um so that we can learn and benefit from mistakes that were made in the past. But, um, you know, there's, it's just one more area of controversy, but, but um, yeah, we, we received a one-sided education coming through, um, you know, local public schools and even college, I think, you know, there was very, very little. um, I know I had my 50th reunion a couple of years ago, UNC. And I think out of a class of 2000, we maybe had 40 African-Americans. Uh, you know, I knew one, one individual that 
you know, we ran track our freshman year together, but it, it was a very different world, a very different um, environment in those days. And in the mountains, a big figure, certainly in Reconstruction, was Zebulon Vance, became a big figure across North Carolina. He's honored even in the Capitol in D.C. So uh, the mountains certainly had a role in Reconstruction, too. You're talking about Charles Aycock and Wilmington, but, you know, the mountains certainly had a big role in, in, in Reconstruction, too. And then, you know, it's, yeah, it's a lot of fascinating stuff just hearing you talk I, about I, it. I have to throw this in. Since you brought up Zebulon Vance, uh, and perhaps this is a topic for a different different interview, but I'm part of the legal team that has brought this challenge um, against Madison Cawthorn uh, based upon the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, Section 3. And uh, to my knowledge, the last person uh, impacted by that particular provision of the Constitution was, in fact, Zeb Vance, who had been selected by the legislature to be United States Senator. But when when he got to Washington, he was challenged that he was disqualified under the 14th Amendment, uh, Section 3, uh, which is the basis for the Cawthorn challenge and um, was not seated at that time. It took a later um, uh, act of Congress to uh, to allow him to be seated later on. So. The past is never dead in the South. It isn't even past in many ways, right? Um, so back to the podcast, you've been talking to a lot of the candidates um, for what is now NC14. Madison Cawthorn, as of right now, is running in the 13th district. So of the 14th district candidates you've been talking to, and there are several, just like there were two years ago, on both sides, both Democrats and Republicans, what are you learning? What do, what do you find some common themes? I think a lot of people love to hear about bipartisanship, and it's that's well and good. But you know, I think also when you talk to people more there's a lot of common issues. There's a lot of common statements, a lot of common feelings that actually come up between both parties. And I think as you're talking to the candidates, have you found some of those as you've been talking to them? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think, uh, particularly among the individuals running in the Democrat primary, I, I mean, the issues that they focus on broadband and, and the like, I mean, th- there's, there's a good deal of similarity, uh, to those issues. I think each of the candidates, and I've at least at this point interviewed all of the uh, the candidates in the Democrat primary, all are, are very well-intentioned and committed with each sort of emphasizing his or her unique qualifications um, uh, to, the, to the primary voters and ultimately whoever wins to the, the, the general. Um, one thing that's interesting to me is I think other than Jasmine Beach Ferrara, none of the others have really been involved in Democrat Party politics. Uh, and that may be a product of a declining party interest. But uh, I think like a couple of them maybe have been registered unaffiliated up until a couple of years ago. Uh, and and so it's it's interesting to me from a political standpoint that that you know it's less about being a loyal Democrat, which is sort of the way it was when I was coming along, uh, and more on individual issues and individual characteristics and qualities uh, that they're they're trying to sell. But um, it, I, I'm looking forward to getting the the 
last quarter's fundraising to see if any particular candidate is starting to uh, demonstrate some proven fundraising ability, uh, which, and I think the extended primary makes it a little tougher. I mean, he gives them a little more time, but between Omicron, you know, continuing to limit personal appearances and not knowing who's going to come out of the primary, uh, it, it's hard to raise money uh, for these individuals. On the Republican side, of course, <laughs> and you can, and I know you appreciate this, Matt. You know, we set up a website, we set up, you know, a logo, the battle for NC11. Well, you know, first thing we know, the General Assembly redraws the districts, which wasn't a surprise. We knew that would happen. But they renumber the districts. So, so now it's NC14. Uh, my worry is if they if the court orders them to redraw them, they may make it District 12. Who knows? I mean, it's <laughs> the hashtags get so messed <laughs> yeah, up. They're already messed up. And you're right. It could happen again. <laughs> I know my wife has done the uh, done all the website and graphic design work for me. I think she will, you know, retire perhaps if, if we have a number change. And then, you know, not too long after they change the, the district's number, Cawthorn pulls this uh, <laughs> stunning revelation that he's not going to run in the 14th. He's going to jump ship and run in the 13th, uh, you know, which is east of, the, the district. And so all of my premises sort of going into the podcast, you know, got blown up within the first five or six weeks. And, you know, we were sort of scrambling to reconfigure that. And of course, then a bunch of new Republicans got in the race. Uh, so there are probably three or four that I've, I've not yet interviewed who have announced that uh, they're running for the Republican nomination. Uh, and since we're you know, not really going to find out what the final district configurations are until, you know, maybe April. And then there's another filing period. Um, I mean, it's not inconceivable that Cawthorn could jump to another district, could jump back to the fourth. Other people could get in. Um, and, you know, so... <laughs> From a podcaster's perspective, it's been a nightmare, and I can only imagine for the poor candidates and their supporters, you know, who are trying to uh, trying to run some semblance of an organized campaign. Uh, all of this uncertainty has been really difficult for them. Well, that's terrific. My last question is: What have you ta- what are you what have you taken away from this so far as you're doing this? And again, so much has changed. So much more could change in a month or two, uh, as well. But how much of how how much what have you taken away uh, during your time doing this podcast about the district, the region, the mountains, and the people that are in it, and the people that want to run for office to represent them? Well, I, I think the biggest takeaway for me, and this includes Democrat and Republican candidates. Uh, there is a great sincerity of wanting to serve. I I have not found, you know, setting Mr. Cawthorn aside here, you know, some great ego trip that any of these individuals uh, are are embarking on. I mean, they all recognize it's a, it's a difficult uh, challenge running for Congress. It's a huge geographical district. Money is hard to come by until 
the broader donor base thinks you're going to be the likely candidate or the likely winner. And, and, and they have persevered. They have continued to plug away, whether it's Rod Honeycutt and Wendy Navarez, Bruce O'Connell on the Republican side, uh, who had been in, all three of them having been in literally since the beginning. Uh, and then the, the six, I'll give them a plug, Katie Dean, Bo Hess, Jay Carey, Eric Gash, Jasmine Beach Ferrara. You know, all of them, you know, continue to stay committed to the race, uh, even though uh, there's all this uncertainty. So, uh, I mean, it, it gives you a good feeling that good people want to serve. Uh, and the challenge is for those of us in the public to take the time and effort to really help and, you know, decide which candidate you would like to support. And then you make an informed decision as a voter. Maybe you make a contribution uh, to a campaign. Maybe you knock on some doors. Uh, You know, these, these people, I think, have articulated the problems perceived with the way Mr. Cawthorn has ostensibly represented the district. They want to do a much better job. And I think the, the public in Western North Carolina, regardless of how uh, anyone might be registered to vote, need to appreciate that and, and, make, and, and make the effort to learn about and support these individuals in, in what they're doing. And so, yeah, to me, that's probably the single biggest takeaway from, you know, the last 12 weeks of doing this podcast. Well, very good. Last word on this is how can people listen to it? Where can they find it? Ah, it's www.thebattleforenc14.com is our website. Now, we're also on all those other platforms that I'm not even sure where they are or what they do, but, you know, Apple, Spotify, what, whatever those things are. Uh, but we have our own website, and, and we have a lot of information about the district, about the maps, um, about links. We have links to the candidates' um, uh, websites, and we're trying to do links to debates and forums that they may have. We want to be a, a resource for people, but it's the battle, the number four, NC, number 14.com. Um, and, you know, let us know what you think. Bob Orr, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Yeah, Matt, my pleasure.